0: We're going to be considering um a subject this evening as, as has been mentioned which is it's an interesting subject and it, it's topical it's um it, it's one that on first glance can seem can seem a strange one i certainly remember when i was um when i was searching for a religion in inverted commas in my late teens i went to, to a lot of different churches a lot of different religions and this is one of those subjects where there there is consistency of of thought amongst lesser-known churches, such as ourselves, the Christadelphians, we might say. It's one that gets to the very heart, actually, of the matter of what the Bible is really all about. And so we're going to, God willing, have a look at that this evening and look at some of the basic principles that the Bible um, reflects to us, uh, because at the heart of this subject is the principle of authority. And so we're going to start by looking at a passage as we uh, follow a process of thought in this that, that deals with um, how God represents himself in the scriptures because that's what this is largely to do with the principle of authority as I've said and so as we build upon this layer upon layer we'll, we'll start by looking at um, what we've got on the overhead there on the screen on in Psalm 146 and it's a consistent theme that we find throughout the Scriptures, where. God provides us with a very binary view and it concerns himself and he positions himself in the Bible as the creator and the Lord of all things against man, who is positioned in the scriptures as a, as a race of beings that are weighed down by sin and death. And in order for a relationship to be made whole with God, then the way has been provided through the Lord Jesus Christ, so that reconciliation between Creator and created uh, can take place, and 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 we'll dwell upon that a little bit later. Um, and so, uh, when we look at Psalm 146, then uh, if we just go through those verses together, I've contrasted it in the colours between the uh, the red and the black there, but you can see. It says, put not your trust in princes or rulers, nor in the son of man in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth. He returneth to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. So on the one hand, we're being told, don't put your trust in the rulers because they cannot help you. And it says in terms of their capacity, they are finite. It says their breath goes forth. It returns to the earth. So the very last moment of life in them, in that very day, their existence is extinguished. And that's what the word perish means in the Hebrew, that the life is removed forever of that individual. And so it's drawing this contrast between the rulers and the immortal ruler, which is God. And so it says, by contrast, in verse five, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. And so we have, a again, that, that contrast between the fact that here is represented to us a God who has this tremendous creative capability. He's able to make all of these things and he keeps truth, not for a finite period, but forever. And that is contrasted against man, who we're told don't trust in man and or don't trust in rulers. And the very day that they die is the end of their existence. And it goes on to say that God in verse seven, he executes judgment for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He looseth the prisoners in reference to sin. He openeth the eyes of the blind and the Lord raises those that are bowed down or depressed. The Lord loves the righteous. He preserves the strangers. He relieves the fatherless. He relieves the widows, but the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. The Lord shall reign forever unto all generations. And so the Lord is saying that for all of these groups, many of whom we might consider to be the more marginalized or vulnerable, and it's representative there of talking about how God is on the side of those that seek him out, he's saying he is there for them forever forever but he's not there for the wicked. And so we just start our thinking tonight with a thought that is expressed very commonly throughout the scriptures, which is, put not your trust in rulers, put your trust in God. That's how the Bible positions itself. And and we as Christadelphians, we accept that the Bible is the word of God, that it is an inspired word and that it's survival throughout all of these hundreds and hundreds of years, um, and its relevance when one spends the time to study and understand it um, means that we are persuaded that that it has not been authored by man. Now, when we think about voting, we're just going to focus for a little moment here actually on them. Um, personal experience because this is different when we talk about voting to some of the other aspects of scripture so for example if we talk about what happens to us when we die or whether there's going to be a kingdom of God on earth or, or, or some of these fundamental basic bible truths more often than not today people don't get overly excited about what belief about these things might be and the reason for that quite simply is that uh, The Bible is not read widely today. It is pages aren't opened readily and its teachings aren't um, understood with any kind of credibility. But when we come on to the beliefs that emerge from the scriptures that impinge on a way of life, uh, sometimes people's views can be aroused a a little differently. And uh, I uh, remember when I... um, when I was at university, I went to um, Warwick University, and the reason that I say that is it's um, it, it's it's a it's a campus university, and, and it's it's all self-contained. And and this was actually a particular um, challenge for me at the time in 1997. So I was at university in the first year, and I was in the last but one year where a student or it was free to go to university, and tuition fees were introduced the year after. And there was um, an election in 1997 and Tony Blair of Labour was, um, was elected to be prime minister. So we'll just part that for, for one second whilst we focus on, on what we've got there. Because when we think about voting, it's easy to think that, that voting has been around forever. Of course, it hasn't. Um, it, it, it was a long journey. Essentially, the essence of voting emerges from the French Revolution. Of 1789. Before then, it wasn't, it wasn't a known mechanism in terms of a system of governance or choosing leaders. Uh, and those three qualities—liberty, uh, fraternity, equality—that emerged from the French Revolution, um, which are spoken about in the Scriptures, in the Book of Revelation—they um, have had a profound effect, particularly in the West, in the Western way of life. And a part of that has been that man thinks about what rights are appropriate for himself. And one of these was a journey whereby um, voting became the norm, which we now see that it is in in Western um, democracy. Uh, But it was a a slow journey. From 1832 to 1884, gradually more and more men were permitted to vote. And then we know that the work and activity of the suffragettes meant that by the by 1930, the population, broadly speaking, as we have it today, could vote. But but even after the Represent- Representation of People Act, which has been updated many many times um, in 1884, um, even then you could only vote if you were a man, and you either owned a house or rented a house. So, for example, if you were a male but you lived with your parents, you, you know you wouldn't have the right to vote. You had to. Um, Live in a house or or rent a house. Sorry, own a house or rent a house, and so it it took a long time for the population to have a right to vote. But but interestingly, um, as we look today, when we look at general turnouts in of elections, uh, it's anywhere between. If we look at the last five elections, anywhere between fifty seven percent and sixty six percent of the electorate who choose to exercise their right to vote. So at the most, it's two thirds that do that. And the reason that the remaining third don't is for a number of reasons, either through disaffection, or uh, feeling alienated from the state in which they live, or for religious reasons. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big chunk of people um, that that don't cast a vote. But um, it, was, it was real to me, uh, and it's worth talking about for a couple of minutes, in 1997, when I was, when I was there, as I mentioned, um, it was a really big topic at the time that the Conservative government wanted to introduce tuition fees and so in the build-up to the election on the university campus, because it's quite a claustrophobic setting, the, the, it was feverish amongst the students that everybody had to vote and vote Labour so that students wouldn't be impacted by tuition fees and that's just one of the photos from the time of a student march saying that they didn't want there to be any fees. Uh, and, and this really reflects what we've read in Psalm 146, because we'll know from history what's happened. Uh, but it says, put not your trust in man. But this was a forcible example to me at the time, because I was under quite a lot of pressure by fellow students not to vote, and they wanted to understand why I wasn't casting a vote. And so, um, um, and there were respectful conversations, although there was pressure. And when I explain the reasons, which is, I guess what we're talking about tonight, why I wasn't participating in a vote. Um, They understood the reasons, even if they didn't agree, not being um, religious. But it was interesting that they were putting their trust in, in Tony Blair to deliver on the fact that tuition fees wouldn't be introduced. And... We can see there that the nation was very much behind Tony Blair getting into power and saying, "You know, your country needs this man to rule and lead the way. But of course, we know what happens. The very first policy change that Tony Blair made when he came into power in 1997 was that they introduced tuition fees. We can see there clearly on the overhead what he said. This is from Channel 4 News. Um, Labour has no plans to introduce tuition fees. We are quite clear that tuition costs must be met by the state. And then within two months, they had introduced tuition fees. They then did it again, interestingly, in 2001. They promised that having introduced tuition fees, they wouldn't increase them further. And David Blunkett, the education secretary at the time, said they would not be introducing top-up fees. He says, I can make the government's position clear There'll be no levying up of top-up fees in the next Parliament if we win the next election. And in the manifesto, again this is from Channel 4 News, if you read their 2001 manifesto, it says in there, quote, we will not introduce top-up fees and have legislated against them. And then within 18 months, top-up fees had been introduced. And the reaction, the, the response Within that campus setting, um, I I shall never forget the vitriol and the anger um, when top-up fees were introduced um, because the promises of this man had shown that he couldn't be trusted. And this isn't anything specific about Tony Blair. This is more expanding upon a wider theme as we go through because I'm not against Labour or Tony Blair. This is just a case in point. And then we find since that that, that regarding Tony Blair, in particular, that that books have been written and um, a lot of journalistic effort has been uh, has been put into raising uh, to light the fact that that this man hasn't been able to keep promises. He wasn't a trustworthy ruler. And this is an interesting one as well. It's often interesting going with the tabloids, not necessarily for the quality of the material in them, but because they do lead with very clear headlines, don't they? They position things in a very clear way. Uh, The sun backs Blair in 1997, and in 1998, is this the most dangerous man in Britain? And then three years after Tony Blair leaves power, we then have regarding David Cameron, our only hope, in Cameron, we trust and we find this kind of rhetoric all the time it doesn't matter which country or which rulers it's a cyclical thing between the different parties or factions but there's always somebody that the people are being encouraged to place their trust in and their hope and the scriptures are clear when we read them and understand the principles that are at play that the one in whom trust should be put and the one in whom hope should rest is God. And and God very much claims authority over the affairs of man. Uh, He claims authority over the seasons of nature, the times when things happen. He selects who is placed in a position of national authority. He chooses the nation state boundaries he is the one that's in control of these things, as we read from different parts of Scripture. And we're going to, by example, as we as we build our thinking, just spend a little bit of time in the book of Daniel. So if we can open our Bibles at Daniel chapter 2, we can see the words that we've got on the, the overhead there, which is from the King James Version. It says in verse 21 that God changes the times and the seasons he removes kings, he sets up kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. And so there are, there are a couple of points there for us that are worth thinking about because scripture does expand on these, albeit that we're only scratching the surface this evening. And so the first point is that God is in control of both the times of things and the individuals that are put in positions of power. That's the first thing. But the second thing is is for those that are wise, those that have knowledge and understanding, they can perceive God's hand in these things. And so when we think about the book of Daniel, it's helpful as far as this topic is concerned, because there was a very powerful ruler, uh, head of the Babylonian Empire, which obviously is a historical empire, if we open up and read our history books, but Nebuchadnezzar was somebody who attributed significant power and authority to himself because of the position he occupied. And so he built a significant monument to himself. That's just a representation of what it may have looked like. A a significantly tall monument that towered over the place so that people were clear who it was they looked up to who it was that ruled over them. And so taking that, God used a similar image to communicate via Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar how he was in control of the affairs of man. And so what we have in Daniel chapter 2 is we are presented with an image that shows the time, the span of man's uh, opportunity on earth. And it spans from a head of gold and it goes through different metals for different parts of the body until we get to the feet. And then at the feet, we, are, we have a stone described for us, which will smash the image and bring it crumbling down to the floor. That's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And, and there are a couple of things that, that are noteworthy for us in This event that that takes place in in Nebuchadnezzar's life. The first is God is impressing upon us in Daniel chapter 4, on three occasions, verses 17, 25, and 32, he makes the point that the living should know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets up over it the basest of men. So part of the, the intent that, that God has with the message of Daniel is to make clear to all those that would read it to say, I am the one that's in control. I am the one that chooses rulers at my discretion and at the times when I choose to do that. And so he's saying this to Nebuchadnezzar because he wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand this truth, which Nebuchadnezzar does come to understand, and we'll reflect upon that in a moment. And so, you see, it tracks time. God says, until that time comes when that stone smites the image, he says, I am in control of all of that, he says. So in Daniel chapter 2, we read in verse 28 that Nebuchadnezzar is told, that God is communicating to him what will happen in a period of time called the latter days. And we now live in that period of the latter days. We know that because in Jeremiah chapter 30, we're told that in the latter days, the nation of Israel would become re-established on the earth. It didn't exist for 2,000 years, but it would become an independent nation state, which we of course, seeing the earth today. And and so in tracking time throughout all of these different empires, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is told, first of all, in verse 38, he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are this head of gold. Your Babylonian empire is this head of gold. And then as time marches on through to the bottom of the statue the image that's that's revealed to nebuchadnezzar in his dream he's told that this will continue with god being in control until the god of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other pieces this is reading the bottom verse verse 44 but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever and so this is all contextualized for Nebuchadnezzar, where God says, you're, you're simply part of a process. You are the first one of many, many rulers over a significant period of time, times which Daniel talks about in his prophecy. And he says, it will, this, it will be this way, says God, until this image is brought crashing down and my kingdom, says God, is established. Now, in order to get Nebuchadnezzar to understand these things, Nebuchadnezzar was presented with very challenging circumstances, which we won't look at tonight because of time. But we're told in Daniel chapter 4, that after Nebuchadnezzar has been through significant challenge and he's been humbled, his view of God is very different. And so we say he's in verse 34, and, and let's note these words because it links back to some of the principles we looked at in our opening scripture which was psalm 146 and at the end of the days i nebuchadnezzar blessed the most high which is god and i praised and honored him that lives forever whose dominion is an everlasting kingdom and his kingdom is from generation to generation he says all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing nothing in the context of god's power that is and he does according to his will in the army of heaven. And so that phrase there is interesting the army of heaven, because what Nebuchadnezzar has insight to is the means by which God carries out his power. And the role of immortal beings called mighty ones, we know them by the word angels, messengers working on God's behalf. Um, They conduct his will, and we have really great examples in the book of Nebuchadnezzar of them practically carrying out God's plans. But Nebuchadnezzar says, "I, I understand God is from everlasting to everlasting. People are nothing in his sight in terms of their capacity and capability when compared with God. And he does things with the the army of heaven. And so nobody can say to God, says Nebuchadnezzar, no one can control God. None can stay his hand. That's what that means. And no one can say to him, what are you doing? Because God is pursuing his course of action that he's determined from the beginning, from the, the promises, if you listen to other talks here, Promises that originate in Genesis chapter 3 of a promised seed of Jesus that would come, but of a promise of a family in this earth, predicated upon the promises that were given originally to Abraham. Now the Apostle Paul dwells upon this same point as Nebuchadnezzar, who can control God, who can say to God, what is it you think you're doing? When we look in Romans chapter 11, he says in verse 33, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? And Paul's reflecting there upon the fact that when we think about God, who says in the Bible, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts the Apostle Paul says, who can advise God? Who who is it that can understand what it is God wants to do in the minutiae of things when we consider him as our creator? Who was first given to him, it says in verse 35, and shall it be recompensed unto him again? And again, he references, such as we had in Psalm 146 and Daniel chapter 2 Daniel chapter 4, that God exists forever in verse 36. So we think about the principles that, that, we, that we've been looking at very briefly so far. The fact that unlike man, who the Bible encourages us, advises us that, that we can't trust man. And we know, we, we know from the world we live in, we, we we are only too clear about the duplicity and the deceitfulness with which governments so often rule their countries in in terms of achieving a specific end we, we would all know that to be true and we would recognize that um, but God by contrast rules forever on behalf of those he rules so that those that love him have a, have a way have a purpose have a hope of something that is coming over a process of time as God builds his family And he's in control of the times, of the seasons, of the rulers that are set up over the earth. And so bearing those principles in mind, let's have a look at an example in the Scriptures. It's from the time of Babylon again. Um, And and we think about that that principle as well, which is bound up in what we're about to look at now. Because when Jeremiah is, is thinking about these things in this way, he says, I know, Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. And there's a picture of a man with his steps who's, who's heading into the wilderness if he's not directed. And, and that's a truth. We'd recognize it, I think, as a truth at the moment, wouldn't we, with the uncertainty of, of COVID 19? Nobody in the world is able to stand up and say, on behalf of of the 7.8 billion people this is what we need to do this is the one way to work through this problem as efficiently as possible minimizing the deaths so that society can begin to operate in a more optimal way there's nobody nobody can do that we we lurch from week to week and it changes week to week. Last week, a national lockdown in England was an inconceivable thing and and was apparently not on the agenda of government. This week, we're headed into one. So Jeremiah makes a point that it's not for man to direct his steps. Now, when we look at the interesting example of Habakkuk, and if you can open your Bibles at Habakkuk, because we'll read some verses from this, Habakkuk was a man who wrote a short prophecy He penned a short prophecy on God's behalf. There are only three chapters, uh, and he wrote it at around the year 610 BC. We can be reasonably precise about this because of the detail that's contained within the chapter. But what we want to focus on is the problem that Habakkuk identifies that he wants God to deal with. Now, on the right hand side, we've got a Babylonian tablet, and the interesting thing about that tablet that's been unearthed is that it recounts for us the sieging of a city of Judah, which we know in the Bible was Jerusalem. Uh, it's described as the city of Judah on that tablet. Uh, and it's the year attributed on the tablet is the year 597 BC. And we know that when we look at the history of the scriptures, that Jerusalem eventually fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC after essentially the best part of 20 years of oppression at the hand of the Babylonians. So Habakkuk is writing just before these events are going to take place and so when we look at Habakkuk chapter one we're told there that Habakkuk has a problem. We're told in verse one the the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, How long will I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. And and Habakkuk saying, I've been praying so long, God, about this significant problem. And he's saying this problem, it's a societal, cultural problem. He says in verse three, why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance for spoiling and violence are before me? there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth for the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceeded." And he says, it doesn't matter which aspect of society I look at Lord, it's all wrong. Your law, he's saying to God, the law of Moses, which was the system of governance in place for the Jews at that time, never goes forth. The wicked are everywhere. They're far more numerous than the righteous. Wrong judgment is all that proceeds. There's violence all around. Why do you allow me to behold this grievance? So Habakkuk raises problems that I think most of us could relate to. When we look around the world in which we live, how safe do we feel all of the time? Do we feel that we can go anywhere and feel safe? Do we feel that the direction of this country that it's heading in is something that is controlled and provides us with confidence for the future. Because we see that all the things, the building blocks, the foundation is in place upon which success can be built. And by success, we mean everything from, you know, um, economical, um, economical sound stewardship through to people's happiness moral contentment and all the rest it doesn't matter which angle we look at this from i think we can relate to habakkuk that there are many many challenges and so habakkuk says there's all these challenges he says god what are you going to do about it now this was at a time where god did directly shepherd the nation of israel in a way that is still direct today but is less overt because What's happened over the course of history is recorded for us in his word. And Habakkuk's given an answer to his prayer. He's told in verse five, he says, have a look around the nations and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told you. And so, again, we have there a response from God, which we can relate to our own time. If we were to say to people today, there is a kingdom that will be set up of which there'll be no end and it will comprise in structure of a kingdom with Jesus Christ as the King reigning from Jerusalem uh, and it will happen in our days, most would say, there's no way that's going to happen. No way. And it's a similar principle here. Habakkuk's told, I'm working a work in your days, Habakkuk. And even though I've told you, You won't believe it. And then he gives Habakkuk his solution. So he says in verse six, I raise up the Chaldeans. So he says the answer to the problem is the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. He says that's my solution to the problem that you're expressing to me concerning the state of the society in Judah. I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter, notice the description here, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march with the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. So he said, my solution is this. I'm bringing against Judah this Chaldean empire. And they're terrible and they're dreadful. And so Habakkuk listens to that, and then he says to God, in verse 12, aren't you from everlasting to everlasting, O Lord my God? We're not going to die. Lord, you've ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, you have established them for correction. So Habakkuk says to him, regarding this society in which I live in, Lord, your Proposing the Chaldeans, and and I understand how you do things, God. He says, I understand that you've chosen them for the purpose of judgment. And Habakkuk would say, Well, well, I agree that judgment should happen because the state of things are so appalling. He says, I understand that you've established them, you've chosen them for the purposes of correction. But he says. I've got a problem. He says, my problem, God, is this, in verse 13. He says, how can you hold your tongue, God, at the end of the verse, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? And so he's saying, as bad as the problems are, In Judah you're going to bring against them a nation that are even worse than we are as a country and he says that there's there's no way I don't accept that he says I don't accept that solution in terms of politically resolving all of these issues that's unacceptable I, I guess it would be a little bit like um, it, it would be a little bit like being told that, that Britain is going to be, um, is going to be overrun and, and, and taken over by the Chinese, that we suddenly move from a democracy to a communist regime where we have no civil liberties or freedom that, freedoms that we experience in this country. It would be unacceptable. If, if that was put in a manifesto, nobody would vote for it. And here, Habakkuk is saying, there's no way I'm comfortable with that and so it's compounded when we look in chapter two it continues he says God I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved so what we're being told in that verse is that Habakkuk is saying my argument is so strong I'm so convinced I'm right that that this isn't the best solution. It's not the right solution. He says, I'm going to wait, protected in the fortress of my argument, until God comes to me. And when he comes to me, I will already have thought of what my response will be. We might have all been like that at times, when we're so convinced we're right about something that we wait for the follow-up argument from somebody, but we're not really intent on listening to the answer because... We're convinced we're right. But God says to Habakkuk in verse 2, he says, I'm not talking to you anymore, Habakkuk. The the conversation's ended. I've told you what I'm doing. And he says in verse 2, no more talking. Write the vision down. Make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Back to that point, I will work a work in your days, which you won't believe, though it be told you. And God says, I'm, I'm not engaging with you on this. You, your job as a prophet is to deliver that message because it's happening. It's what I'm doing as part of the plan that I have. And so we find in verse three that it says, the vision is for an appointed time. At the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it wait, do it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And within a sh- few short years, that came true. And we'll see that Habakkuk came to fully accept this principle. But moving on for a moment, the language that Scripture uses for believers, for those that believe this word, the The wonderful message of the commandments of Christ as to how we should be as people to have the fruits of the spirit and to be lovely, godly people. That's what we're called to be. But it does use military language when it's talking about the battle that any believer faces. And that's the battle with themselves. It's the battle with sin. And Paul says, don't get involved in the things of this life. And the word holy and the principle of being separate is a very important principle when it comes to being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul says, and it's almost like the language of military conscription. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life nobody that's warring the warfare the battle against sin that's the context That's what he's talking about nobody engaged with overcoming himself gets involved with the affairs of this life why that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier a soldier of christ following after the example of christ When we look at uh, Romans, if we can go there, please, to Romans chapter 13, that we had read for us. The Apostle Paul is very unequivocal in what he has to say. He says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. He says, I don't care what your views are on such and such a political party. He says the whole range the depth the breadth of the political spectrum is irrelevant to you if you believe in the bible he says you will subject yourself and you will be a good citizen for whoever presides over the country in which you live he says let every soul be subject to the higher powers the only powers that exist says paul are of god they are ordained or chosen by god And so he says, whoever resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good and so Paul is being very clear that God selects the powers that be in any given country in any place at any time because this is all on a trajectory that unfolds chronologically from the head of gold down to the feet of the image in Daniel it's all been previously mapped out and so the challenge of Paul when he says don't get entangled with the affairs of this life And the challenge for habakkuk was how do you know which power god intends one of the things going back to that occasion when i was at university which was a, a challenging time with a specific point and it's the only reason i mention it was one of the things that they that that i talked about with them with real confidence from the scriptures was that when we were talking about the politics of the situation, I was being very clear that it wasn't that I wasn't interested. It's just that the Bible already has these things mapped out. And I said, for example, the Bible is very clear that Britain will not remain a part of Europe. And of course, this was a long time before it happened. And when we look at these subject matters, for those of us that read the scriptures, we we understand these things that are spoken about, from the time that they were written through to now. So that there's credibility in the views that we have. It's just that there there's, there can be a mind shift in people, but it can be arresting when they, they first come to understand this process. But Paul is very clear. God is in control. Habakkuk is very clear that if he was voting, he would not have voted for the Chaldeans. He'd have absolutely voted against them. Peter has a little bit more to say on this when we come across of Peter in chapter 2 because he's talking here about our responsibilities to the state. And so he says in of Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 12, have your way of life, that's what conversation means, have your way of life honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they might not understand what it is you're about, ultimately the narrative of your life, your good works, which they behold, means they may glorify God in the day of visitation when the things that are spoken about concerning Christ's return begin to come to pass. An alarm might go off in their head about, I remember something about that. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for whose sake, not man's, for the Lord's sake. He said it doesn't matter whether it's the king, whether it's as supreme or whether it's government rulers it doesn't matter who it is says peter he says you are to submit yourselves to every ordinance provided it doesn't contravene god's commands which peter is equally clear to make out as we read in the book of acts and so he says in verse 17 he says honor all men he says love brotherhood or the family of god fear god honor the king or the ruler and so peter's very clear that whatever it is that's put in place for us that we are to respect and honor that and and this is all important because where all of this leads is to the lord jesus christ jesus was very clear about this point If we go to the Gospel of John in chapter 18, Jesus is clear that those that read the Bible, study the Bible and seek to be true Christians. That they are not pacifists, that they are not people that are disinterested from the affairs that take place in the world, quite the opposite. But he's very clear about where authority lies and the timing of when it lies. And so we read when he's before Pilate and he's about to be crucified and Pilate says, haven't you got anything to say for yourself? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, if I were politically engaged with the things of this world in terms of government or system for living my servants would have been fighting and i wouldn't have been delivered to the jews he says but my kingdom is not from the world and so jesus is very clear he says if my focus wasn't on putting sin to death at my first advent but rather focusing on my second advent then yes things would be different then but but they're not that's not the focus and so for now i don't engage with these things and my servants don't fight in these things either because hebrews 11 picks up on this point and it talks about faithful men and women starting in, in, including people such as Abraham who I've already referenced. And so we will say of, of Abraham for example that Abraham died in faith. He didn't receive his promise says the bible but he saw the promise afar of off he was persuaded of it he embraced it and he confessed that he was a stranger and pilgrim on the earth and that's the same for us they say that for they that say such things declare declare plainly that they seek a country so when jesus says my kingdom is not from this world he means that its values its principles the very basis upon which it is run is not earthly its thinking is heavenly it's not derived of man it's derived of god And it was the same for these people in Hebrews chapter 11, because it says of them in verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, one where the thinking is heavenly, not earthly thinking of man. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And that city, if we were to look at this as a different subject, would be the city of Jerusalem. And so in closing our thoughts, being Bible believers, or if we're Bible believers, it's imperative that we accept God's authority. God is clear in stating that he rules in the affairs of this earth. Though this earth heaves with sin, the ground was cursed from the time of adam and sin is seen in the natural elements as well as in the thinking and the behavior of people god says i have a purpose with it and my purpose is on the earth he says i formed the earth in isaiah 45 verse 18 i created it to be inhabited but not inhabited as we see it today habakkuk was to realize that although he wasn't happy with the solution of the chaldeans to the societal problem in judah that through faith he accepted god as his creator and god as his ruler his lord and habakkuk said the just shall live by his faith and it's faith in the things of the chronicling of God's affairs with man that are represented in that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter two, that as we chart or we track time through that, we can test the word of God, that he does tell the truth and he does keep truth. Because the end objective god is that the family which he has been developing built upon the promise given to abraham is that this earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord it's a very specific habitation that he's referring to in isaiah 45 it will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea it will be everywhere because the time will come when the kingdoms of this world, which Jesus was referencing in John chapter 18 to Pilate. I don't pick up the sword now, Pilate, but the time will come when I will in judgment on this earth, because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And then when this phase, this dispensation is past and is no more, There will be a new phase ushered in, and for that, there will be no end. And so, in understanding the principle of God's authority from the Bible and his control in the affairs of men, it therefore precludes the Bible student from being able to cast that vote that might be in opposition to God's will. Thank you for listening.